Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete, the podcast where I interview interesting people about their careers, about technology, and about the internet. This is part four in my very special Visit California mini series. So if you haven't gone back and listened to number one to three, you're missing out. You should listen to all of them. I've interviewed some incredible people based in California. I've been working with Visit California for quite a few years now. So this idea of partnering and going to California and finding some very different guests to interview who live there was just the most incredible opportunity. And I got to interview some really innovative entrepreneurs, pioneers, artists, writers. I just got to interview all the people who are so perfect for this podcast. And so massive thank you to Visit California for organising it and inspiring the content for this mini series. So my guest today is Erica Williams-Simon and I interviewed her at the Mondrian Hotel in West Hollywood, which I really recommend. Such a brilliant hotel. There's a pool. The views are amazing. It's just very LA and I loved it. She is an incredible person. She's a true multi-hyphenate like me, does many different things. She is the host of one of my favourite podcasts, an interview series called The Call, which is hosted currently on Man Repeller. She is also the head of the Creators Lab at Snapchat. She's also an author of the forthcoming book, You Deserve the Truth, published in May by Simon Schuster. Her book is all about the lies that we are told and how we unpick the stories that we're constantly told and follow our own truths. Prior to all the work she's doing now, she used to work in politics in Washington. She led Generation Progress, among other roles, and she was named one of Politico's youngest top 50 to watch. She's been on so many lists and she's done so many things. But we talk about in this interview, actually, how she kind of pivoted and left politics to do what she's doing now. We talk about how California is such a great place to be an activist, what she knows about burnout and how her family have shaped her. For more information, if you want to visit West Hollywood or you want to plan your own California road trip, then check out visitcalifornia.co.uk and also visitwesthollywood.com. Both have tons of information on there to help you plan a trip, loads of travel guides and just lots of inspiration around booking where you might want to stay. There's also a great blog called California Now that Visit California Run, which is the tourism board's own blog And they also have a TV channel called Dream365. So have a look online and on their Instagram. And I hope you are inspired to maybe go to California one day. It was truly an incredible experience that I'm very grateful for. And this partnership has been very exciting. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please make sure to leave a rating or a review. So excited to finally be in the company of Erica Williams-Simon. What do you say when people say, what do you do? That annoying question. It's such a hard question. Um, You know, I say that I have throughout my entire career created spaces to ask critical questions about who we are and how we want to live. So I've done that in the world of politics. I've done that in media as a host. I've done that at Snapchat, heading the Creators Lab. Um, And, you know, wherever that takes me, that's kind of what drives me is I love conversation is my art. So I I love to do that wherever I go. I love it. And it feels like something so incredibly natural to you, like you kind of just came into the world doing this. I mean, on your website alone, in your like about me section, and I love that you sort of you really tell the story of who you are. And actually that merge between work and life feels like it's very merged for you because you you sort of mention your family's 
impact and influence on you as well. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that. I, I went to a conference a couple of years ago and they, um, for the icebreaker, they had us write 10, uh, 10 ways that we would describe ourselves. And then we had to go around the room. And as we introduce ourselves to each person, we had to cut one thing from the list based on its importance in our life. And by the end, what you were left with was the most important thing about you. And in the end, I was left with, I'm Tom and Debbie's daughter. I so that's how that. I introduce myself sometimes. Um, because my family really is the foundation of who I am. So my parents started our church in our basement when I was nine months old. And I always joke that when people say they grew up in church, I'm like, no, no, no. I really, <laughs> really grew up in church. Um, and, and our house was a house of service. It was the place where, you know, if you needed to call and be bailed out of jail in the middle of the night, you called my father. If you needed a meal or a place to stay, you stayed with us. Um, So that was kind of my orientation to the world, Uh, both service and also the power of of words and speaking and convening people to actually help change people's lives and change the world because that's what church really is and was mm-hmm. um, for me. So, so that was um, the way I saw the world and how I moved through the world. And I, I was such a daddy's girl. I wanted to be just like him. Maybe not a pastor, but I knew I just I, I kind of he was like my idol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was 16 years old. He was preaching a sermon called New Life, and it was all about how it is our God-given right and and the gift that we have from our Creator to be able to change our lives in any given moment, that we don't have to be slaves to our past and we can create a new life. Uh, And it was this wonderful, amazing sermon, and everyone was like shouting and and then in the middle of it, he um, he clutched his chest and he had a massive heart attack right there in the pulpit, um, Mm -hmm. and he died in front of me and my nine-year-old sister and my mother and the congregation. And um, I always say like in that moment, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, my mother became the head of a single parent household. She was widowed and, you know, I was a daddy's girl without a daddy. And, and there was all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the way I saw the world changed. I, I wouldn't even say a little bit, a, a lot. We were, um, we were at his homegoing service and there were lines and lines and lines of people who were coming up and telling us these wonderful things, these wonderful stories about how my father had helped them or, you know, he helped me get a job or he helped me get into rehab or, you know, helped me reconcile my family, all these beautiful stories. And they were supposed to be comforting, but I was actually really annoyed by it. I was very angry and frustrated mm-hmm. because I didn't understand how if one person could give so much and change so many individual lives why the community overall looked the same. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know like, where does this stop? And in, so, in some ways that was kind of my, my awakening to say that there is more than just direct service. There is more than just kind of, um, you know, helping people and inspiring people to change their lives. There's also systems and structures that impact that. So it was kind of like my political awakening a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went on to work in politics and, and, and then my career went on from there. But, but I always tell that story because in it, you see the foundation of everything that drives me. Mm, One is so using the power of, of, of my voice to be able to help people change their lives. And the second is always connecting those dots to um, social change and social impact. Because in some ways, I think that was the piece um, that I think, um, you know, had we been more engaged with, would have helped my father in, in his mission while he was here. 
for International Women's Day, I, I gave some remarks. It was one of the most unique invitations I'd ever been given, which was to come talk about burnout. The, the Women's Resource Center on this campus um, said that they had been requested by the, the young uh, students and young students of color to talk about burnout because they were experiencing so much and didn't know where to go to talk about it. And it's something that I've seen time and time again um, in, in women, in people of color, in folks who are, you know, change makers. It's just that we drive so much change and we're so driven by our mission or or even by ambition, whatever it is, that we don't often stop to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really important. There are all these stories, and that's what my book is about, You Deserve the Truth. There are all these stories that we've been taught about success, about identity, about money, about work, Um, you know, that I think have really crippled us Mm. and they're not true. But at some point it takes someone to tell you, you know, you don't have to believe that anymore. You don't have to believe um, that your value is inherent, uh, that you're, I'm sorry, that your value is dependent upon how much you work or how hard you work, Mm. Um, that your identity is not dependent upon how much you sacrifice or what the world tells you they expect of you. These are all subconscious narratives that we've consumed either from people around us or from media, from movies, whatever it is. Um, And it makes life really, really hard. Mm. I I remember going to an event recently with, um, well, not with, I, I was in the audience right at the back, but Bill Gates, who gives a lot of money a lot of money yeah you know people were just saying well why are you not doing this and what about this and what about this and what yeah. about this and he just presented on you know small um positive change in terms of like medicines around the world and i just thought this is a man who could be on his own private island i'm not saying he's perfect but it's it's incredible to me that someone can really want to do so much and still met with it's not enough yeah instead of going oh it's really cool that you've given a billion pounds <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah and uh, and you you have to be able to quiet that that critic, whether it's a real critic in the world or just a critic in your head. You have to be able to quiet that and say, no, I am doing enough. I'm doing the best I can. Um, who just won? Someone just won an Academy Award, and that was her. That Those were her remarks. I'm going to be so mad at myself later for forgetting who said this. But she was like, every day she just wakes up and says... I'm, your best is good enough. And that's just something we have to remind ourselves every single day. Because yes. oftentimes it feels like it isn't when you're trying to do so many things. I feel like a lot of people got quite emotional at that, at that the simplicity of how meaningful that is because, I, yeah, we forget that, don't we? And you have so much to say and so much to give. And I wondered with your book that's coming out in a few months, how did you go about sort of sitting down and, and mapping out like what to put in the books it feels like you could have written like 10 books <laughs> I know it was a, that was a stressful process because I had so much to say and and my husband kept reminding me he's like Erica this this is just the first book you don't have to put everything in this one book um but I in the book I tell the story of certainly that and what happened to me and in my childhood and my father but the real turning point in the book for me is what happened when I got frustrated with the life that I'd been living and the career that I'd had and decided to quit and walk away. So on that note, so for anyone who doesn't know, so did you had quite a stressful, like all-encompassing job, right? Oh my goodness, yeah. When I started out in my career and for the first several years, I was full-time in the political world. I worked for 
um, a, a national civil and human rights organization first, and then I ran the youth outreach arm of um, John Podesta was Clinton's, uh, Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, his organization. So it was this really intense job, um, and my role was to kind of build policy campaigns around um, uh, issues that mattered to millennials and young people. So we worked on everything from climate change to education reform and affirmative action um, to police brutality, just a host healthcare reform at the time, uh, a whole wow. host of issues. So I was really in the weeds in both policy and activism and traveling the country, talking to young people on over 500 campuses, figuring out what issues were, were mattering to them, what activism they were doing in, uh, on their campuses that needed to be supported, and then bringing those messages back to Washington and talking to elected officials, to Congress, um, and kind of being that conduit and that evangelist. Wow. It was it was a full, full-time job, and it was kind of my life in that at that period of time. Um, everything was about helping young people make their voices heard and make tangible policy change on behalf of the communities that I cared about. Um, and so it was it was great. And, you know, it got me a lot of recognition. It got me on a lot of those 30 under 30 lists and, you know, all that stuff. And so from the outside, it looked wonderful. It looked like, wow, you're really young and you have this high powered career. And I was on television. I did real time with Bill Maher and I got to talk about, you know, changing the world. Like what could be better? Um, but I didn't feel that way on the inside. On the inside, I was frustrated. I didn't know, I didn't feel like I was um, using my voice in the most authentic way to me. It was you know, very much in the weeds of politics. And politics, while it critically important, uh, can be very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to have a certain calling to want to devote your life to politics. Mm -hmm. And that didn't feel natural to me. Changing the world felt natural and helping people did, but politics and DC and all that, it didn't feel natural. Um, I was chronically cash poor because no matter how things look, you don't make a lot of money in activism. Um, you, I wasn't making money. I was really, really underpaid at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I had you know, student loans like most people our age, you know, um, and and I just felt unfulfilled and I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. I had that kind of stereotypical, you know, millennial midlife crisis. <laughs> and did you have people like telling you, wow, you're killing it? Wow, you're doing so well. Oh, my God. You're amazing. And then inside you're like, I feel bad that this isn't matching up. Yes, I think yes. that's so relatable. Yeah, I felt, I also felt guilty. I felt guilty for feeling bad because I'm like, you have so much, you have so much opportunity. Um, but I just, I was not happy and I didn't, I didn't like where I was headed. When people would tell me like, oh my gosh, your next step is you need to either go work on the Hill or you need to run for office or you need to run mm -hmm. a nonprofit organization or all these kind of um, paths that were laid out and I felt kind of ashamed that I didn't want to run for office. I felt ashamed that I didn't want to run a nonprofit, like that all the things people expected of me, none of them uh, appealed to me at all. Mm. Um, so I did what you know people like me are never supposed to do and it's I quit and I quit with no plan. Mm. And I used to always hear people say like, you know, the Jerry Maguire moment, like I'm, I just quit my job, I was fed up. And I was like, that is not me. I would never do something like that. I have rent to pay, like I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. But I did. So were you burnt out? Yeah. Because I feel like burnout, you know, is so serious. And, and at that point you kind of don't care anymore, do you? Exactly. You're kind of done. I was just done. Yeah. Um, and, and in the process, 
I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do what everyone thinks I should do now. Like when you quit one job, if, you, if you're a relatively successful person, the assumption is you're quitting because you have something bigger and better to go do, or you know what the next big gig is. And I was like, nope, I'm quitting because I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I think that's so brave because you, you also have to, you know, face those annoying questions from like family members and people at like dinner parties. And it's like, you're uncomfortable that I don't know what I'm doing, but actually I'm kind of okay. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, people were so uncomfortable and to the point where I was lying and pretending like, oh, oh, I I left because I'm starting a company. I, you know, I updated my website bio and I I bought business cards. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Um, And I think that's a very generational thing that we feel like if you don't know what you're doing, say you're an entrepreneur, (laughs) right? Mm Um, I wasn't an entrepreneur. I wasn't building anything. I really was trying to figure it out. Um, and, and in the process, I, what I did figure out over time was I had so many warped ideas. B- back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about who I was supposed to be and how the world was supposed to work and money and success and work and time. And I, I felt old even though I was only in my late 20s. And I felt like I missed my moment. Like there's all these narratives that had really paralyzed me. And so I said, no matter what I do next, I'm going to figure this out, all these ideas. I'm going to challenge them and question them. And I want to get my mind right. Um, and so I started studying this concept called narrative intelligence, which um, in the book, I, I, I define it as how do you understand the stories that are shaping your life? How do you see them and understand them? And uh, that's what the book ended up being about. It was about that process to go through the ideas that I had about life and success and identity um, and challenge them and rewrite them. Mm, that's amazing. We really need that. Just unpicking all of these myths and stereotypes and it's so true. You know, why were we fed this idea that if you're on TV, you must be making loads of money? Or if you do X, you will... It was just... I feel like millennials were kind of conned a little bit. Like, we entered the workplace and we were like, yes. everything's changed. No one told us. There's a recession going on. There's all this stuff. <laughs> so many it's things. So annoying. Yeah. And it's... I mean, the concept of understanding the stories that shape you is universal. But I do think there's something very unique and specific about our generational experience because we were exposed to so many narratives in a way that no other generation ever has been between media and then social media. Um, You know, like you, you mentioned, the recession coming out, we paid a lot of money, those of us who went to college for our education, but then that didn't translate um, into a stagnant economy and wages. Um, you know, we grew up seeing parents who had a certain level of um, adulthood by a certain age, right? Like by mid-20s, mm-hmm. you had maybe your first home or, you know, a child and marriage and the white picket fence. And, and that was not going to be the case for us. And, and I feel like there were all of these expectations and we didn't know how to meet them. Mm. Uh, and it's not whining, right? It's not complaining. And I spend some time in the beginning of the book saying that because I think when folks who are older than us hear hear this narrative, they're like, girl, we had it so hard. We had it so much harder. And I'm like, you had it different. And you had it hard in different ways, 100%. Mm, so it's not about comparing or playing like a, the oppression Olympics, yes. right? I'm not saying we have it harder. I'm saying we have a, a different set of circumstances and we were not given the tools to deal with it. Unlike every other generation, the institutions that were supposed to be there were broken by the time we came along. Um, so, you know, government was broken, the public education system broken, religious institutions by and large broken. Um, 
and so we didn't have the skill set or um, we weren't equipped with the proper tools to figure out, okay, how do I navigate this changing landscape and this economy and all these messages? Mm -hmm. So that's what I hope this book is. It's the book I wish I had when I was starting out my career to say, okay, before you just charge ahead and you know put up pretty pictures on Instagram and pretend that you know what you're doing, let's unpack what you believe because what you believe is gonna ultimately shape what you do the rest of your life. Oh my God, I wish I could just get in a time machine <laughs> right? and read it and then I would have saved so much. Exactly, like, So many wrong turns, but would you say it's for everyone of all ages then or, or have you sort of in the back of your mind said this is for young people? It's everyone of all ages, but I do I do talk very specifically about um, millennials and folks in their twenties and thirties and the unique generational context we're in. Um, but but for example, my mother's friends have read it and they're like, "This is so helpful." Some of these ideas I had too. Um, so I think anyone can read it. But if you are in your twenties and thirties, there'll be very specific things that are relevant to you. Amazing, because you've consulted on millennial behavior for, for years, and and I find it interesting now that we're like getting older I and I find it so funny because and maybe I don't know if this is just me but I was having a bit of like an identity crisis because I'm 30 this year and my whole thing has been like the young millennial in the workplace oh like God. that's been my whole career up till now like I wrote a book about like being online and like being yep. a millennial yeah and now I'm like I feel just that I'm entering this new decade. Yeah, it's funny. I feel the same way. I, I always say I, when I introduce myself and someone's like, are you millennial? I'm like, yes, but an old one. Because there's a difference. There's yes. a difference. There's a whole new generation. Um, and I see this especially working at Snapchat. My job there is basically to um, work with digital creators and create spaces for them to share stories and to be inspired and educate and learn. So I do in-person events and interview folks. Um, but every day I'm seeing folks, you know, our core demo is young, very young. Oh, and yeah, it's really young on Snapchat, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... It, I mean, I feel like I've read that somewhere. I don't actually know. <laughs> yeah, it's not... I think the target target demo is between 18 and 35. So it's not, oh, right. a, it's not a bunch of 15 year olds, right. but I will say it skews very young. So every day I'm seeing new memes. I'm seeing, you know, so interesting. And I'm like, oh my God, that looks so crazy to me. Cause I'm like grown, grown now. I'm like, I wouldn't use that Kylie Jenner, like lips up. <laughs> right, but like right. you guys do what you need to do. It's a whole new generation. Um, and like you, I came up in my career being like a youth evangelist. Like I'm the one that is young and understands young people. So it's a little bit of an identity crisis for yeah, us. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 part of growing up, you know. And it, it it's actually a great opportunity for us to say, you know, our knowledge about our generation is still incredibly valuable. We're just not the new kids on the block anymore, mm. you know? It's funny because everyone has to go through this. Everyone. And it's, it, I think everyone gets to the point where they're like, oh, okay, there's something really nice about being the older one now. Aging is fine. good. Aging is so good. I mean, it. I, the level of confidence I got when I hit 30, um, the, the level of just maturity and knowledge and wisdom, mm. And I love being able to share that with folks who are in, I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book. Like, hey, I've done this and here's what I learned. And that's something you only get with age and time. No matter how yeah. smart you are, um, there's certain things you only learn by experiencing them. Totally. So being in California, and I'm so excited, I never want to leave. I just <laughs> wondered, what's the community like here? And, and are you excited by, you know, are you going to be doing book events here? Like, what, what's the like community like in terms of, 
the creative activist circle like just tell us a little bit about it yeah it is my favorite so moving to California was part of that life transition that I made when I quit politics and was like what do I want to do um, my husband said well can we leave DC now and, and move to California and I had no idea what I would do out here I was like this is California is a completely different world I'm an East Coast baby and it was probably the best thing for me and the best experience of my life California is just um, it's beautiful, both physically, but also the spirit of the people. Um, it's a very open and creative environment, which is very, very good for folks like us who do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. It's a, a slash culture. I'm a this slash that slash that slash that. Um, so everyone is very open to new experiences, to kind of um, a fluid identity in every sense of the word, right? People don't expect, people don't ask you the first thing they say is not, what is your job? you know, or where do you work? They do say, what do you do? But there's an understanding that you can do 20, 30 different mm-hmm. things here and it's great. Um, I love that. And the activist community is is so, so beautiful. LA is, the one challenging thing I'll say about LA or surprising thing for me was as diverse as it is, it's very segregated because it's such a spread out mm-hmm. city. So when I came, I was fortunate enough to have a really strong community of activist friends who kind of plugged me in and showed me the ropes. Um, And when you look under the seams, it is the most beautiful, diverse place. Um, And the activists here, what I love about them, let's say that's a little bit different from let's uh, East Coast activist culture, is that there is um, there's a natural comfort with spirituality, which is something that's hugely important to me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at an activist meeting here in California or in L.A., I know it sounds cliche, but like they'll open with a prayer or with with, um, uh, you know, a a chant or something that is just it's just a different culture, which Mm -hmm. I appreciate because it feels a little bit more holistic um, and less um, explicitly political all the time. What I've gained from being in such a diverse community and diverse environment is the ability to kind of connect with people from all different faith backgrounds, Mm -hmm. um, the ability to translate what I believe to people who did not grow up with that same language, who did not grow up with that same understanding. Um, The ability also to say, here's what being Christian means to me and not necessarily kind of what the stereotype is or what, um, you know, people assume the politics are. I'm really, really radically liberal, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's also a part of who I am. So I always say I wear my faith and my politics on my sleeve. Mm. It's, it's both make me who I am. Yes. Um, and California has been a, a wonderful place for that to be able to merge. Because I think we're all at our core spiritual beings living a human experience. Totally. Yeah. I love that. So the book, are there any yeah. fun things coming up with that? The book comes out May 7th. Um, and I'm doing a tour. I'll be hitting DC, New York, obviously LA, San Francisco, Detroit, Atlanta. Um, that's what we have on the tour so far. Hopefully we'll add more cities. Amazing. Um, I'll be doing a partnership with The Wing. I'll oh, be, I love The Wing. I know, they're so amazing and they're opening here in LA it's So soon. exciting. So um, I'll be doing a bunch of events with them. Um, I'll be at Aspen Ideas Festival. So I'm gonna put up the tour on my site and, and we'll cu- hopefully keep updating it with amazing events. I'm going to do um, a limited run series of my podcast, Of The Call, with each interview themed towards the chapters of the book. Amazing. So we'll have women come in and talk about work and um, success, money, faith, love, and identity. Those are the core topics that we talk about in the book. Uh, Fear, following your dreams versus pursuing your purpose. All of that will theme a season of The Call around. 
Uh, so it's going to be fun. It's going to be so fun. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about knowing, you know, your limits when it comes to burnout and stuff like that. So good that you know that because I think some people, when they go on tour, they're like, oh my God, like suddenly, you know, you're busier than you're, you've ever been. And actually knowing, knowing that you've done so much and knowing like where your limits are. So it's going to be so helpful. This is the thing. And you know this about writing a book. You sit by yourself in a room for so long and you write this and you work on this thing. When it's time to give your baby to the world, I want everyone talking about it. I want not just people to buy it, but I want them to buy it. And then I want to be able to engage with them and hear what they think and debate ideas. So I'm very much looking forward to, to being on the tour. It's, it's funny as well because of the world we live in, you know, doing so much on the internet and being like internet people books are still so like they really just have this ability to like make such a splash yes and I love that people are still reading so much I know I love I love love reading um and I love in-person conversations it's part of why I do you know the podcast it's part of what we do with the creators lab at snapchat is bring influencers Mm -hmm. and creators into physical spaces so I love that a book is an opportunity to spark that you know that I can come to your city and we can actually sit face to face not just on the internet yes well I'm so happy for you and to know your backstory and like how you quit that job not knowing what you're doing and now looking at what you're doing it's really amazing thank you so thank Thank you so much for talking to me and um i look forward to more episodes of the call as well yes thank you so Um, much and obviously reading the book thank you i can't wait thanks so much thank you 